conference I went on at St. George North, uh, a, a church members conference back then. Uh, John Woodhouse was speaking, who uh, has just finished up as the principal of Moore College, but he was the principal of Moore College then. Uh, and uh, he spoke from 1 Thessalonians, uh, and he said something. I don't remember anything else he said, uh, just in case you think I'm going to ask you in 10 years what I said today. I don't remember anything else he said except for one thing that has stuck in my mind, and he said, and I don't even remember where he got it from in 1 Thessalonians, and I've looked back trying to find where he got it from, so it may have just been a bit of wisdom from John. But uh, he said, one of the things that happens with Christians is after we've been Christians for a while, we've been a member of the church for a while, we don't realise how special it is what we've got. And so we don't realise just that most people in the world don't have what we have here today. Uh, most people in the world don't have anywhere near the number of friends who they could call brothers and sisters who care for them and pray for them and look out for them. Most people in the world uh, uh, do not have anything like we have. Uh, and uh, that has always struck with me. Because sometimes as Christians we can sort of uh, feel like uh, church is an obligation or something at times or, or, or that coming to meet with our brothers and sisters at Christ is a, is a legal duty or something. But it's actually an incredible privilege uh, and that's always struck with me and I was just reminded of it as I wandered around chatting to different people out there as I met little Caleb, uh, little Caleb Newby. I hadn't actually met Caleb in the flesh. I'd heard him cry before but I hadn't met him in the flesh. Uh, it is a wonderful privilege. So I'm going to pray. Uh, and before that, what a privilege to have these people who are not standing here now but I, you know who I mean by when I say these people serving us. In particular, Troy, who's uh, led the music team. Why don't we just express our thanks to the musicians? <laughs> and now I'll let us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful joy and privilege it is to be a part of your people. We thank you that even if we have given up things to follow Jesus... You have blessed us immeasurably more. Uh, we thank you that because we are in Christ, we have a family, mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters and children who we share because we are brothers and sisters with Christ and children of you. Father, we thank you for the way so many people use their gifts to service. We thank you for Troy and the Musos for the effort they've put in to helping us today. And we do thank you for the privilege it is to be able to encourage one another in song and to praise your name as we do so. We pray now that you will help us to understand this chapter of Revelation and in particular to continue to think on what it means to glorify you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the uh, problems we have with understanding the world of the Bible is that there are no good kings or emperors left anymore, anywhere in the world. They're really just sort of a historical remnant. Uh, depending on whether you're a monarchist or a republican or a I couldn't care less, Ian. Uh, whatever you are, you'll think differently about the royal family. Uh, but even if you love the idea of the royal family, even if you go and buy the... Uh, who makes the sauces and teacups and that sort of thing? Royal Dalton. I always think of toilets when I think of that. But that's not, anyway, even if you go and buy the, the porcelain cups with the Queen on it or, or the picture of... Uh, William and Kate at their wedding, and if you're going to wait up at night to see if it's a boy or a girl, even if you're the most incredible monarchist, at the most, I would say you respect the Queen. You love the Queen. I don't think there's anyone who fears the Queen. Has anyone, by the way, ever met the Queen? Have we got anyone who's ever met the Queen? 
No? Anyone had a telegram for the Queen for being married for 60 years or something like that? No one. There you go. We are a disappointing lot, aren't we? Anyway, uh, but if, if you were invited to a reception at Buckingham Palace, uh, you'd learn the etiquette, I assume. You'd, you'd you know, put on your best frock or your best suit. You'd shine your shoes, for some of you, for the first time ever. Uh, you'd learn how to curtsy. You'd learn how to bow. Uh, since the 1600s, though, uh, you do it out of respect, not fear. You see, since the 1600s, kings and queens have lost that absolute power. They've become respected, or even not even respected, figureheads. That's what our monarch is. Uh, that was not the case in the ancient world. That was not the case in the world John lived in. Uh, a king or an emperor in the ancient world, held your life in his hands. Or for that matter, he held your death in his hands. There were no checks, there were no balances. If he said off with your head, there was no appeal. It just happened. Uh, you've seen on the TV shows and, and the movies, you know, to enter into the presence of the queen or king, you have to keep your eyes down. And then even when you leave, you're not allowed to turn around. You've got to back out backwards to show them the respect that's due to them. And the emperors of Rome were the worst. Uh, many of them considered themselves to be gods. That is the height of hubris, to, to actually consider yourself to be God. The emperor Domitian demanded that he be worshipped around the empire as the Lord and God. That's what he demanded people call him. So to enter into his throne room was to enter into the presence of the gods. So, of course, they particularly hated and particularly persecuted the Christians who said the emperor is not Lord and God, Jesus is Lord and God. Uh, you see, but that's the world the Apostle John was living in as he wrote Revelation. So put yourself in his shoes as he now finds himself in the spirit entering into the throne room of the true emperor, entering into the throne room in the heavens of the king of the universe, standing in the throne room, not of the Roman emperor, but of the one true God. How do you think he's feeling at this point? He's not feeling awe-filled. He's not feeling respectful. He's terrified. He's petrified. Keep that in mind as we turn back to Revelation 5. And we've got two aims as we look at this chapter. The first is to understand the chapter. That's always our first aim. But the second aim is I want us to keep thinking on that theme of the glory of God. What does it mean to glorify God? Now, as we start chapter 5, we're at the critical point. The one sitting on the throne, God himself, is holding a scroll. Now, normally a scroll only has writing on one side, but it tells us, if you look there, this one is covered in writing on both sides. It's so full of information this scroll that he's holding in his hands. But the thing is, the scroll is sealed with seven seals. I'm amazed I actually managed to say that. That's a real time. Just try and say that five times quickly. The scroll is sealed with seven seals. Try and say that. There you go. It's hard. There you go. I'm sorry if you have a speech impediment and I've just caused you angst. But, um, but as he holds this, this scroll, sealed with seven seals, covered in writing, inside and out, an angel asks... Who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? Not just anyone can open this. 
And that's because this scroll is God's plan for all of history. You see, to open this is to know the very mind of God. And more than that, the one who opens it will be the one who God works through to bring about his plans for humanity, especially for his people, but for all of the world and for all of history. And so the angel asked the question, and what's the response? Silence. Absolute silence. I've had Bible studies like that, uh, where you ask a question, you know, what's in verse 5? Did I ask a trick question? Is there something difficult? This isn't that sort of silence. Here the silence is because there is no one. There is not an angel in heaven. There is not a person on earth. There is no one worthy to do what opening this scroll means. There is no one worthy to open this scroll, let alone break the seals and make it all happen. And so John breaks down in tears. Not because he isn't counted worthy, he doesn't think, oh, I thought I could have been the one who opened the scroll. But because if no one breaks the seals, then God's plans do not come about. You see, the new heavens and the new earth, the judgment of those people oppressing God's people, none of it will happen. All of the things that Revelation 6 to 22 talk about, none of it will happen if no one can break the seals. But then John hears a voice. One of those 24 elders we met before speaks. One of the people on our picture here. Look at verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Stop crying. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has been victorious so that he may open the scroll and its seven seals. Don't despair, John. There is someone. And those titles he uses are the titles of the Messiah. They're the titles of the anointed one, the one the Old Testament pointed to and focused on, the one who is descended from David, the one who comes from the tribe of Judah. And this one, John, is a victorious lion. It's a glorious description of the one who God would use to bring about his plans for all of history. And so John stops crying. Just put yourself in his shoes. Keep thinking yourself in here. You just imagine he turns with joy to look at this incredible victory-winning lion. Sort of like Aslan in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. You know, the big lion, if you've seen the movie. But he gets an incredible shock. And it's like you can hear the click as his jaw drops open between verse 5 and verse 6. Look at verse 6. Because he says, Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing between the throne, and the four living creatures, and among the elders. Instead of a massive, noble, kingly lion, he saw a bleeding, broken, slaughtered lamb sitting in the place of prominence. Now, of course, we know that this is Jesus. We know that this is Jesus crucified. But even as he describes Jesus here, there's a paradox Uh, Because the slaughtered lamb, he says, has seven horns. Seven is the number of God. It's the number of completeness. And horns are a symbol of power. See, so he's saying the slaughtered lamb is the one with divine power. 
And he has seven eyes symbolizing the Holy Spirit that he sends to the ends of the earth. He can see everything that happens in all of creation. And that is the paradox of Jesus. He is both the broken, crucified one and he is the living, all-powerful, all-knowing one. And in fact, it was in dying as a lamb that he became the victorious lion. And so even if the angel did say it would be the lion who would open the scroll, we never actually meet the lion again in the whole book of Revelation. You can go home and read right through to chapter 22 and you never meet the lion because it is the slaughtered lamb who comes and takes the scroll out of the hand of the one seated on the throne. It's the slaughtered lamb who is at the very centre of all of God's plans for all of history and for all of humanity. And here's the thing, is there anything less powerful, less victorious and less glorious than a lamb? When nations want a symbol for how strong they are, what do they use? They use the Russian bear, they use the American eagle, they use the British lion. Even in Australia we sort of bucked the trend a little bit by having a kangaroo and an emu, but that's probably fitting. Because that's about how powerful we are. You, you know, that, uh, I am not aware of any country who symbolises its power by having a lamb. New Zealand should, but even New Zealand says a small flightless bird is better than a lamb. You know, so, sorry, uh, Raywin and Linda, wherever you... Anyway, yes, other New Zealanders. Uh, well, football teams. What do football teams call themselves? They call themselves dragons or bulldogs, or sea eagles, or ravens, or kangaroos. You know, impressive animals, fast animals, animals that do something. I love sport, but I... What's that? Rabbits. Well, that says something. (laughs) I love sport, but I'm not aware of any team in any code anywhere in the world, and I watch just about all of it. Uh, I am not aware of anyone called the Lambs. I mean, would you go for the St. George lambs? It's it's just not very powerful and impressive. I mean, and certainly not the St. George slaughtered lambs. That's what they'll be on Sunday night after they play the Raiders. But but if you called yourself, come and play against the slaughtered lambs, it sends out the wrong message, doesn't it? But that's just it. You see, what does the world think of as glorious and powerful? And what does God think of as glorious and powerful, and they're two very, very different things. See, where do we see the glory of God most profoundly? When is God at his most glorious? Not in the wonder of his creation that I talked about this morning. Not when you see the stars that you can't count going to the ends of the universe. Not even in the splendour of the heavens, but in the broken body of the slaughtered lamb. It is Jesus Christ and him crucified on the face of it, the most inglorious moment of all history. That is where we see most profoundly the glory of God. It's the great paradox or or irony or whatever the right word is of the gospel. Glory comes from humility and suffering rather than through power and through victory. See, that's why the world just cannot understand Jesus. 
The world just cannot understand Jesus and it cannot understand authentic Christianity because the world sees glory in prestige. The the world sees glory in power and positions of prominence and, and taking the seat at the front. It's why, this is the thing, they would rather we be like the Roman Catholics. The world understands the Roman Catholics. They understand the pomp and the ceremony and putting the Pope up on a pedestal and all the big basilicas because that's the glory of God, isn't it? But we say no. We see glory not in power, not in privilege, but in humility and in suffering and in giving up the position of prominence. I promised I'd stretch you today, so please stick with me and uh, keep concentrating hard. Because if you keep looking at the passage, when the slaughtered lamb takes the scroll, our friends from chapter 4, the four crazy creatures with all the eyes and all the wings, and the 24 elders, together they do something amazing. Uh, look at what they do. Remember, remember this. God himself is seated on the throne. Remember the jasper and carnelian and the rainbow. God is seated on the throne, but they fall down before the lamb. See, even with God there on the throne, they fall down and worship the Lamb. This is horrible blasphemy and sin. Uh, This is punishable by death under the Old Testament law, unless, of course, the Lamb is worthy to be worshipped, which he is because the Lamb is God the Son. Look at verse 8. It says, When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down, that has the sense of worship, they fell down before the lamb, each one had a harp and gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. It's almost a uh, passing reference there in verse 8, but I love that little reference to the fact that our prayers are in heaven. Do you see it there? It's sad, but in our silliness, we're tempted to think of prayer as weak and uh, seemingly useless. Uh, Even if we don't think it, we act like it. We'd rather do something than stop and pray. Prayer just seems so weak, so, so useless, such a waste of time. Yet prayer is the one thing we do that counts in the heavenly throne room. And the fact that the image here is of our prayers being in gold bowls in heaven... I mean, it doesn't take Einstein to work out that our prayers are seen as something so precious in God's sight. And it's not our busyness that is in gold bowls in heaven. Do you notice that? It's not our success that is in gold bowls in heaven. It's not our bank accounts that are in gold bowls in heaven. It's not even our evangelistic efforts in gold bowls in heaven. It's not even the number of years you taught Sunday school that are in gold bowls in heaven. It is our prayers And that just continues that theme that glory is in weakness. See, the very thing we are tempted to think is least impressive is actually the thing that is most important. I was reminded recently for another talk I gave, and a few of you were there to hear it, so I'm sorry to use the same story twice in a couple of weeks, but of a lady I met when I was a student minister at Moore College up on the northern beaches, She was very elderly, she was housebound, her name was Gwen. She couldn't get to church. Uh, So obviously she didn't teach, she didn't serve in any way. 
but I can tell you, she glorified God. Because instead of watching daytime TV, like I would have been tempted to do, she devoted herself to listening to the sermon tapes, reading the Bible, and most importantly, she devoted herself to prayer. She just spent hours every day praying for her church, even though she never went to church. Praying for her church, praying for people she knew in ministry, and especially praying for the spread of the gospel. And I want to tell you, that is glorious. That is glory. Despite her circumstances, despite her weakness, in fact, because of her weakness, she was glorifying God. If we want to be people, if we want to be a church that glorifies God, then we must be a people of prayer. We want to metaphorically fill those gold bowls in heaven. I'm going to ask you now to just take a moment to pray for yourself on your own. Don't turn to the person next to you. And I'll ask you, will you make a commitment with me to repent of your prayerlessness? Will you make that commitment to repent of prayerlessness and commit to being a person and a people of prayer? And what I want you to do is everyone do it on their own, close your eyes and pray. And pray and ask God to forgive you for the times you are prayerless and to ask him to make you more of a prayer. And then I want you to do something else. Only if you're, only if you're serious about it. I want you to write it in your book. I said action point there. I want you to write it in your book and write down. And I'm going to ask you about it in a couple of weeks' time. I'm not going to ask you individually, though I might ask some. I'll ask collectively. So let's now close our eyes. And let's pray for ourselves that we might be a people of prayer. Amen. Just write something in your book to remind yourself. Maybe write down what you think you might do to make yourself pray more. Don't look at what the person next to you is writing, just do it for yourself. But now I want us to turn from what the elders were carrying, from the harps and the gold bowl. I don't actually know what the harps were. I don't know, maybe... The incense went through the hearts to God. I don't know. I don't know how that worked. But now we're going to turn from what the elders were carrying to what they were saying. So look at verse 9. It says, And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. And why? Look there. Because you were slaughtered. The reason you are worthy to open the seals is because you died. It's not because you are an impressive lion descended from David from the tribe of Judah. It's because you were slaughtered. That's why you're worthy to open the scrolls. And it's not just the fact that you were slaughtered that makes you worthy. There have been plenty of martyrs throughout history, plenty of people who've died for a good cause, but none of them are allowed to open the seals. It's because you were slaughtered and by doing that, what does it say there? Look with me. You redeemed people for God by your blood. Jesus didn't just die. His blood paid the price 
for our redemption. That word redemption is so important. Uh, Colin Buchanan sings a song, Big Words That End in Shun. We might sing it later on, maybe, I don't know. But big words that end in shun. If there's a word in the Bible, if you find a word in the Bible that ends in shun, learn it. Justification, propitiation, sanctification and redemption. Where do we use it today? We, we use the word redemption today with vouchers. You know, you get a voucher and it says you can redeem this for one hamburger. And they're never very good when they redeem them. But anyway... Uh, on our last holidays, I was taking the kids to the movies and I made a cardinal sin, a massive error. I went past intensity. People know that place, intensity? If you grew up at the same era as me, think time zone, where all the computer games and that sort of thing are. And the kids were bugging me and bugging me, can we go to intensity? Can we go to intensity? It's, there's all these different computer games there. And in the end, in my weakness, I must have been soft in the head or something, I, I said, yeah, we can go to intensity. And I said, here you go, you've got $10. About three minutes later, they came back having spent the $10. And the thing was, I thought we might play Daytona. I thought, this will be good. I can beat Sam and Eloise at that. You know, the, the driving game or maybe the pinballs. I was pretty good at pinballs. But no, they want to play the games with the tickets. They want to play the games where you hit things on the head or you get a claw and find something, and it gives you tickets come out of it. So after they'd spent their $10 in what felt like three minutes, they came back with a pile of tickets like this. And they, uh, the sign there says, you can redeem your tickets for these prizes behind the glass. And so there's an iPod there and a massive teddy bear like this. And, and so the kids are all excited. They, got their prizes. they take it over to the lady and she runs them through the machine and she says, oh, you've got enough tickets to redeem and we go down from the shelf with the iPod and the teddy bear and we go past the PlayStation and we go down even past the Whiz, Fizz and Magic Bubblegum shelf to the individual Minties shelf. <laughs> and she says, you have enough tickets to get two Minties. Which, may I point out, say, not for individual sale intensity, if you're listening to the recording. And here's the thing, I have three children. And the, no matter what I said to that lady behind the thing, she was not going to give me another minty for Sophie. Uh, and so it ended up costing me another $5 because I had to go to Coles and buy a whole packet of minties. <laughs> that is all by way of explaining that's what redeemed means. <laughs> but here's the thing, we get a much better deal. We get such a better deal. Because you see, back then... It was not about releasing the prize from behind the glass. Back then, redemption was about buying a slave's freedom. That's what the word redemption was about. And that's what Jesus' blood does. Jesus' blood redeems us from slavery. Slavery to sin and slavery to the devil. That is our natural state apart from Christ. We are slaves to sin deserving of God's righteous wrath and judgment, but Jesus' blood shed on the cross pays the price to win our freedom. And he doesn't just pay for two minties and sorry, Sophie, you can't have one. Look at verse 9 there. People from every tribe and language and people and nation. See, Jesus' death pays the price for everyone who would turn to him. See, but Jesus' death does more than that. 
as impossible as it is to, to say that, more than that, he, he doesn't just by his death redeem us from slavery. He doesn't just redeem us from sin. It gives us a new status. He, his death gives us a new position, a, a new identity. Look at verse 10. It says, you made them, that's talking about you, by the way, if you trust in Christ, you made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. See, we used to be captives to sin, but Jesus has bought us so that now we are citizens of the kingdom of God and now we are priests. We exist to serve God. One of the great shames of history is that the word presbyter in the New Testament got translated hundreds of years ago to the word priest in English. And so sometimes people say, are you the priest? And I invariably answer no, and it confuses them, because they say, well, can I talk to the priest? I go, well, there isn't another one. I'm, but, but I don't want to be called the priest, because people think that there are special people who serve God. Special people who act as God's middlemen here on earth, like priests did in the Old Testament. But there are no priests in the New Testament. Or more correctly, there are no special priests in the New Testament because every Christian is a priest. So if someone comes to you at church one day and says, can you point out the priest to me? Say, I'm him. And that will throw them into confusion, especially if you're a lady, because they'll say, I didn't think the Sydney Diocese ordained women. You can confuse all sorts of people with that. But you see, every Christian is a priest. We have been redeemed to serve God and we exist to declare his praises. We live to intercede for other people on their behalf to God through prayer and by telling them about Jesus. That is what we are. We are a kingdom of priests. And we have a glorious future to look forward to. He only just mentions it in passing there. We will reign on the earth when Christ returns. That's why Jesus' death was where he won the victory. That's why Jesus' death is where we see the glory of God shining at its brightest. In his death, he was redeeming us from slavery to sin and the devil. In his death, he was saving us from the judgment of God. And in his death, he was making us a kingdom and priests to serve God forever. It's sad, but we can get tired of hearing sermons that remind us that Jesus' blood paid the price for our sins. It's interesting, and I don't want you to stand up and repent publicly at this point, but I'm sure there are people here who thought as I got to that part in the talk, oh, here's Phil doing the Jesus bit. Because we talk about it so often. I remember reading an article someone wrote after they visited lots of churches in Sydney, and they said, you know, it was like listening to a broken record. Every sermon in every church mentioned Jesus' death. And this person said, why can't they just move on to other things? What's the answer? No, we can't. We can't move on to other things because there is nothing else. That's why the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, did I put that on the outline or it's on your outline? He says, I resolved to know nothing among you other than Christ and him crucified. I resolved to know nothing among you 
other than Christ and him crucified. You see, the whole Bible focuses in on this one point. All of history focuses in on this one point. Christ and him crucified. And here in this vision of the beasts and of the elders and of the angels worshipping Christ and giving glory to him, it's his death that they find so wonderful and they never, ever stop talking about it. It's not like they say, we praise you because you are the slaughtered lamb and now we want to glorify you for something else. We'll never move on to anything else because the death of Jesus is the most glorious thing. And you see, if we just sort of skip through the rest of the verses, they don't move on. Look, look from verse 11. It says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands, plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, The lamb who was slaughtered is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth and under the earth, on the sea and everything in them say, Blessing and honour and glory and dominion to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb for ever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So do you see how they just keep singing the same song? They don't move on to new things. They keep singing about the Lamb who was slaughtered. Because that is the glory of God. Well, our question today has been, how do we glorify God? Uh, and I hope you've got the overwhelming answer from Revelation chapter 5. If you turn onto the page there, there's a final question on page 8. How do we glorify God? If that's what we live for, if that's what we exist for, how do we do it? It's a funny thing, but what glorifies God most is not talking about the wonder of his creation, like I said in the first talk, though that is great and it is glorious. What glorifies God is talking about Jesus and especially about Jesus' death. That's why the first prong of glorifying God must always be proclaiming Christ. It must be. Because it's in Christ, and in particular in him crucified, that we see the glory of God most prominently. See, in heaven, you will declare the glory of the slaughtered lamb forever. And the thing is, God doesn't want you to wait for heaven. He wants you to start declaring it now. But here's the thing, and, and uh, the girls in the video before, I think Imogen, hit on it. The reality is... If we glorify God by proclaiming Christ, it will bring us into conflict with our world. That's just the reality. See, the world does not mind you talking about God. It doesn't mind you talking about God, and it doesn't even mind you talking about God the Creator. The world says, see, you believe God created the world. I don't. That's all right. We all get along. You believe in your God. I believe in mine. And we're all happy. But when we proclaim the glory of God's redemption, when we proclaim that you see the glory of God in Christ and him crucified, that confronts people. And it has to confront people because hand in hand with it, it says to people, the lamb had to die 
because of our sin. See, that is the thing. You only understand the glory of God. You only only understand the glory of the cross if you first understand why Jesus had to die. You see, it is glorious because our sin was so horrible, but he paid for it. See, unless we understand the reality of hell and the reality of God's judgment and the reality of our lostness, we will never, ever really grasp the glory of God shown in the cross. And more than that, and my final point, uh, and not in that sense of that I talked about a couple of weeks ago in Philippians, uh, what this shows us is that we glorify God in our weakness. Do you want to glorify God? Then it is in your weakness that he will be glorified. See, we're always tempted to think that impressive things are glorious, that we bring glory to God by putting on a front of how godly we are and how together we've got it and, and how wonderful we are. We're always tempted to think that having it all together is glorifying God. But the glory of God is shown in our weakness and his strength, not in our strength. See, the glory of God is shown through our humility, through our not pride. It's wonderful when people want to build great cathedrals for God, but the most impressive monuments to God's glory are not cathedrals, it's when a person devotes themselves to prayer for other people. That's glorifying. When a person serves teaching scripture for 20 years, even though no one notices and no one says thank you, and actually the kids are little... When a person suffers for the sake of sharing Jesus with someone else. Like Imogen said before, when some friends reject you but then one says yes, that's glorious. When a person sacrifices their own comfort and security for the sake of serving Jesus and for the good of others, that glorifies God. When a person doesn't put on a pharisaical front of righteousness but says, I'm a sinner, I confess my sin, but I trust in a wonderful saviour. That glorifies God. See, that's how we glorify God, by humbling ourselves and proclaiming Christ crucified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we as a church and as individuals might truly bring glory to your name. We, we know that we cannot make you more glorious because you are the glorious, perfect God of the universe. But Father, we pray that we might declare your glory by proclaiming the truth that you sent your Son into the world to die for us. And Father, we pray that we would not seek to glorify ourselves, but instead we would seek to glorify you. Give us the humility to do just that. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing perhaps the greatest hymn that has captured the glory of the cross at all, from all time, which is When I Survey. <laughs>